you've got a Bible, let's get to the good stuff. Uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 9. And look at ver- we're going to look at verses 19 through 33 uh, together this morning. We're not going to start uh, by reading all of it. We're, we're going to look at a big chunk of it. Before, but before we even get there, I just want to recap what we talked about last week in the first half uh, of, of chapter 9, uh, in case uh, you weren't here or you just forgot. Uh, but uh, basically last week was really uplifting because we were all reminded that God is bigger than us. And so a lot of times the questions that we have and the things that uh, we deserve to be answered by God about, uh, stuff that doesn't make sense in our lives, about how God can choose some and maybe not choose others in certain ways, give gifts to some that he doesn't give to others, all this different stuff that kind of look at, we, we perplex us about how a just, fair, loving God could be this way. It's good for us to remember from time to time that God is bigger than us. And so because of that, that has some real implications on our life. We, we said last week that what that means is we need to stop ta- talking and start kneeling. That we need to stop talking so much that we don't hear God. That uh, it's not so much that God doesn't want to hear us, that God doesn't want us to ask questions. It's more for our sake that we need to take into account who he is as we come to him, and we need to be overwhelmed by that. We need to start on that basis that this relationship we have with God is not a peer to peer relationship, but He's God, we're not. And so let's just get that straight to start off with. Because once we get that straight, we can do the other thing that Paul says we need to start doing, and that is stop demanding and start desiring God. To start understanding exactly who He is and how great He is, and the fact that we can even have a relationship with the God of the universe means that maybe. We shouldn't demand all the things that we do from him and his church and his people all the time. And we should just desire him in the way that we can have him in the way that he set it up. This is the basis, this idea that God is bigger than us. And so we need to start doing this thing for where we're going, not just today, but over the next few chapters. And so it's in verse 19 that Paul then again kind of just continues this conversation with this fictional instigator. Basically, I I think what Paul's doing is Paul's just saying, like, I know if you're reading this, these are the questions you're going to have. This is the issues that you're going to have because you're a normal person. I'm a normal person. So let's just go ahead and talk about them. And so we'll pick it up there in verse 19 where he says, you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved I will call beloved." And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons uh, of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, 
If the Lord of hosts had not let, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It's always a really uplifting passage when Sodom and Gomorrah get mentioned in it, right? It's like, oh good, this is going to be this is gonna be awesome to talk about. As we try to unpack what Paul is saying here, and Paul kind of does a deep dive into the Old Testament, and we'll get to that here in a second, it can be a bit confusing, so we're going to try to break it down just into like little chunks. And so if you look at verses 19 through 21, what you really see Paul saying there is exactly what we just recapped from last week, and that is, hey, God's bigger than you. You're going to have these questions of God, just remember, he's bigger than you. It's that whole thing again. It's kind of that segue where Paul's like, hey, I get it. Different question, same answer. And so we can kind of, for our sake today, skip that part and move on to verse 22 through 24. So let's look at that again really quickly here together. He says there, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul says, yes, it is true. God has created you. God has made you. And he has made you with a purpose. What's more is God hasn't just made you, and so now you're this mindless lemming walking around, just kind of sitting there doing whatever God wants you to do, just mindlessly acting upon. God's made you. I mean, this is the incredible thing about God. He's a creator who has created creators. You have reason. You have logic. You have creativity. You have problem-solving skills. Well, not all of us, but most of us have problem-solving skills. Common sense, we like to call it. This is like next-level stuff. Like, it's one thing to create. It's another thing to create something that can create. That's who God is, and that's what he has created. And so Paul isn't minimizing any of that. Paul isn't saying, you're not this amazing thing made in the image of God. He's not going there. He gets all of that. He's not, he's not undermining the complexity of humanity here, which is what it can sound like, right? That we're just vessels that are created to kind of do this thing and, and, and sit where you know, you're placed and, and don't move and don't ask questions and, and that sort of thing. That's not what Paul's saying. What, what, what Paul is saying is in the midst of the complexity and the beauty that is humanity and that is who you are, don't lose sight of the fact that God is still in control. He is not some kind of divine Victor von Frankenstein that has created monsters that are now running loose, ravaging the local village. God has created you. God has made you complex, but God is still in control. And he created you, not mindlessly, not aimlessly, not just because he was bored. He created you for a purpose. He hasn't lost control of things. He is the bookends to all of this. 
the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is nothing that is outside of him. He encapsulates it all. He's over it all. There's nothing that doesn't happen without him knowing, without him controlling, without him working towards his ends. There's nothing you can do that goes outside of that. Paul Paul says here, he uses this word, he he says in, in verse 22, what if God desiring desiring to show his wrath. This word for desire that Paul uses, I mean, it means desire, but, but it's more. He, what he's talking about is more than just simply wanting something. He's not saying, well, what if God just wants to do this? Because actually, the word that Paul uses for desire, the main use of that word is actually purpose. He says, what if God's purpose is to show his wrath and to make known his power in order to make known the riches of his glory that he says in verse 23. See, it's not just that God has decided one day that he wants to do this. You see, desire is one thing. It's a one-to. Purpose is another thing. It's a have-to. We know this in our lives, right? We have to find our purpose, the thing that we have to do. And when we find that thing that we have to do, if we can't do that thing, it kills us, right? And so Paul is saying, what if God's purpose in everything he does is to make his glory known? And if God's purposes are accomplished because he's still in control, what that means is Paraphrasing Paul, his glory wins. God's glory always wins. It wins out. There is nothing that is not going to ultimately point to his glory. And this is what it's always been about. I'm sorry. As much as we talk about personal salvation, as much as we talk about the fact that God is for you, and as much as we talk about how much God loves you, and all these different things, you're not the point of the story. He is. His glory always wins. And this might, this next thing is going to sound self-centered, but it's not, so just stick with me. God is all about His glory. Now, if I were to say Matt, was all about, Matt is all about his glory, which I am, you guys would be like, man, that's really self-centered. You know why it's self-centered? Because my glory is not that great. You know why it's not self-centered when God is about his glory? Because his glory is pretty spectacular. Amen. He should be about his glory. See, that's the thing. It would be weird if God wasn't about his glory because his glory is the only thing that has actual value by itself. It's kind of like those awful uh, daytime TV commercials that are always trying to get you to invest in like gold or silver, you know, sort of thing. And they like, they come on and they're like, the market's tumbling. Stocks don't mean anything. Uh, You need to invest in gold right now. Diversify your portfolio. Be safe, right? Gold has never been unvaluable. It always has value. So invest in gold. Put, put your money there, right? 
And it's terrible. And, and like when you're a kid, like you, you put up with those because it was like, well, get me to Price is Right, right? And then like once Price is Right was done and you were left with those and like, you know, new news and then soap operas, you're like, I've really screwed my life up now. And so you're really regretting the decision to play hooky and tell your parents that you were sick. And, but, but it's not true, right? The, those commercials are not true because it, no, gold has been unvaluable. There are places and times where even the most precious of metals and the thing that we look at and the thing that we'll kill ourselves over and the thing that we'll kill each other over has no value. Tell somebody that's starving and doesn't have food that they should invest in gold rather than bread. But God's glory, no matter where you are at any time, is the most valuable thing you could ever invest in and have in your life. It is never without value. This is the point of Revelation. In Revelation, somebody was joking with me that I should preach about Revelation today. They had no idea. Um, Because they were like, you know, you should just do like the fire and brimstone thing, drop the mic, walk away. That was last week, okay? Um... This is the point of Revelation. The, the, the whole point of, uh, of talking about streets of gold and, and jewels on the walls and the diamond lake we all like to talk about that like we're going to be fishing on and that sort of thing, it, it's not to say, look at all the riches you get. What it's to say is, when we are living in a place where the glory of God is on full display, the stuff that we find the most valuable in the world has so little value that we will walk on it. God's glory wins. And the things that we think are valuable pale in comparison to that glory. They have no glory. They have no worth. They have no value. The stock market will be crashed, and what's more, the gold you've invested in, it will be used for street pavement there. And so God has always been about his glory. He created the universe to express his glory. Each successive day of creation where he said it is good, what he said is, this expresses my glory. This shows who I am and what I'm about. He created us not so that we could do our thing, but he created us to experience and know his glory and what's more, to share it. Not just with, keep it for ourselves, not just with our spouse, but with everyone, with all of creation and to make sure that creation was living up to its full potential to experience and express the glory of God. And even when it looks like his glory has been undermined, guess what? He uses those things and his glory still wins. I can't stress it enough. His glory wins. I can't stress it enough because it might be the hardest thing, one of the hardest things for us to hear in our modern age of of just self-determinism. This idea that we determine who we are. This idea that it's just a hard idea for us to accept. 
It's the reason why a passage like this, we read it and we're like, I'm not really sure I get what Paul's talking about here because we don't want to get what Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying that there is there's an object, there, there is a person, there is a God outside of you that has shaped you, is shaping you for a purpose that you don't have a say in what your purpose is. You don't get to determine everything about you. You don't get to determine everything that your life is about. Why? Because that's just not the world we live in, no matter how much we try to tell ourselves it is. And what's more is because it's about his glory, no matter how much you try to live for anything else. We don't like the idea that something about us can be set or decided upon about ourselves before we have a say in it, do we? We push back against this, and and yet like... If we just like stop and think about it for a second, so much of who we are and how we see the world and how we understand ourselves and other people is determined by forces outside of us. Did you know that basically everybody that was born before 2000 is technically a pirate? true. I, I, I follow this uh, Instagram account. Um, it's, a, it's an account for dads, and um, I really like it because they share tweets basically about dads talking about how we're old, uncool, and obsolete now. And uh, the other day, I, I, I found this, uh, I saw this tweet where uh, this guy said, uh, my six-year-old flatly refused to believe that we used to navigate using maps made out of paper. You mean like pirates, he said? If you were around, I mean, even if you go, I mean, you could go back to like new technology, like MapQuest, where you printed out the directions, right? You're still a pirate. It's only in the last maybe, I don't know, 10 years that it became this like obsolete thing to not use paper. Dra- I, I remember going to like AAA, like, and, and my mom would like take us down there because we had no money. And she would be like, if we wanted to go here, could you draw us out a map? And I was like, stop wasting their time. We had so many maps of trips that we never went on with tri- AAA. But like the best thing was, is when you were going on a trip and you had the AAA map and you got to be the one that had the AAA map. And it had like, they had like, you know, highlight. It's like so like low tech. Like they had personally highlighted. It's like I could have done that at home. I don't know why we're paying for this. But we like to think that like everything about us is in us. How we see the world, how we see other people, how things work. And yet there are so many forces. Like this is a dumb one. But there are so many forces outside of us that are shaping us. Just, just think for a second, it, it, put yourself in the position of, of someone that was born after 9-11 and what you think is regular for getting on an airplane versus someone that flew and traveled before 9-11. Like your idea of security and safety and how the world works and everything is so different because of that. Just simply based on when you were born. Based on the decade you were born has a molding effect. That's why there are documentaries about decades, about the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. You know why? Because it's only the people that were molded by that decade that like to watch them. 
and remember them. And it's nostalgia. And you're like, oh, yeah, that was a big deal for me. And oh, my goodness, I can't believe I wore Jinko jeans down to my, you know, down to my ankles and everything. Like, it was a thing. And if you weren't a child of the 2000s like I was, you don't know what Jinko jeans are. And so we really struggle with this idea that our life can be determined. Like the ultimate purpose of our life can be about something that we never chose for that to be about. That we could be molded and we could be shaped by something outside of us. But that's the reality of the world that we live in. You can fight it, you can tell yourself it's not, but you're just going to be kidding yourself. And so what Paul is saying is you have been molded You have been shaped, you have been created for the purpose of glorifying God because it's about his glory, it's always been, and it always will be about his glory. And so here's the thing you need to know. If you are finding yourself ever, today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, finding yourself frustrated with life, let me share a life hack for you right now. Whatever you are working towards that isn't about the glory of God is not going to pan out. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even by the end of your life, but eternally speaking, if it is not for God's glory, it is not going to last. Better yet, maybe it will last, but it's going to get turned around and used for his glory. And so if that's not what you want, it's not going to work. This is what Paul is getting at in verses 22 through 24. The choice that you and I have, because it's all about God's glory and his glory wins, and we have been created for that and we are being molded and shaped by that, the choice that we get is we either show his glory willingly or reluctantly. Our life is either a testament to his glory, his love, his mercy, his patience, his justice, his righteousness, his faithfulness, or it is a pure contrast to the glory of God. And guess what? It shows off his glory even more. Just look at Rome. We are reading a letter to a group of people that lived in an empire that seemed like it was never going to end and seemed like it had all the tools necessary to bring down a movement of a zealous group of 12 guys that had no education following a guy who had been crucified by the very empire. And here, centuries later, the church of Jesus Christ still stands and Rome is in ruins. If you're not working towards the glory of God in your life, it's not going to pan out. And it's going to act as a contrast to his glory. And it's going to show who he is. What's more is what Paul is saying is, so what if he's decided to show his wrath by being patient? His patience and his mercy and being patient and merciful with people and giving them time and the opportunity to respond when he does finally judge them, it's going to show his glory even more because it's going to show not only is he just and not only is he powerful, but he's patient and he's merciful and he's loving. His glory wins no matter what you do. Stop fighting it. Stop fighting it in your life. 
Stop running from it. Stop thinking that you can do things outside of it. Stop thinking that you can live for yourself and you can build your own empire and you can build your own life. It's not going to work. Because it's not about you. It can't ever be about you. Because the glory that you can attain has no value in light of the glory of God. Like, I get it. This is difficult to swallow. I mean, Paul gets that too. It's not like Paul is like just uncaring. And, and so that's why, that's why Paul jumps into the Old Testament as much as he does. And it's usually where Paul jumps into the Old Testament that it throws us for a loop because we don't know the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't mean what it meant to his original audience. And so Paul, Paul, in a book where Paul, I think, uses like the Old Testament references like 24 times, here in this one half of this chapter, Paul goes to the Old Testament four different times. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to connect with something that matters, something that resonates, something that the people that are reading this understand to be true. With him. He's not saying, I'm just like spouting this off. He's trying to show, like, look, this is, who God, this is the way it is, but also remember the big picture of who God is. And interestingly enough, in doing that, he brings up just kind of an obscure little prophet named Hosea. And if you don't know the story of Hosea, it's a really interesting one because unlike most prophets, where most prophets were told to just go and speak, Hosea is actually told to go and speak, but also that his life is going to be a case study. It's going to be an example of God's relationship with Israel. And so because of that, Hosea is instructed to go and to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And so Hosea goes and marries this prostitute named Gomer, and we're told that Gomer conceives and bears him a son. And so he names that son according to what God tells him to name it. And then we're told right after that that Homer, Gomer conceives. We're not told that it was Hosea's. Actually, there's a different phrasing there, which seems to suggest there was a question about who actually the father was. And Gomer conceives a second and a third child that Hosea isn't sure is his. And so God instructs Hosea to name the first one, one literally. This is the name for the kid. Imagine this, right? One for whom no affection is felt. If you saw Justin's announcement video that he's having a boy, you know that that's not going to be the name of his kid. The third one, the third child that she has, Hosea actually names no kin of mine. Ouch. Man. The reason for naming these kids this way is to show at this point in time in the relationship between Hosea and Gomer, the disillusionment that Hosea is obviously feeling because the relationship is not as pure, it's not as exclusive as it should be. It's meant to show us the disillusionment that God has with Israel, that God has with us, because he has he has married us. He has committed himself to us. And time and time again, we go looking in other places for other things. We go looking for our own glory. And, and, and it's right after Hosea names these kids that the, the entire book just turns to talk about destruction and judgment. And you're like, well, that seems about right. I mean, that's, I, I get that God feels that way. 
But then there's this really interesting turn just a few chapters later. Where after God gets done talking about all of the hurt and the angst and the anguish that Israel is going to go through because of their constant idolatry. He commands Hosea to go and find Gomer who had run back into the ghetto. Left Hosea, the one who had brought her out. To find her, purchase her, and bring her back. Hosea is told to do this so that we can see where God's heart actually is at in all of this. God doesn't just simply say, I'm creating some of you to be destroyed so it shows my power, and I'm creating some of you to be saved so that you can see my glory and it shows my love and my mercy. God is saying, I have painstakingly gone back into the depths of hell to purchase you, to bring you out. That my desire, my purpose is that you would all know my glory. He longs for that. And and what's more is he doesn't want us to just know his glory as a contrast to it. He wants us to know and experience the full weight of it as his loving children. That's why Paul uses that text in Hosea where it says, In the very place that you were called not my children, you will be called beloved children. That is what God wants for us. That is how he wants his glory to be known to be experienced, and to be shared. Don't choose the other way. See it for what it is. See that it all ends up in the same place. It's about him. So be about him, not in contrast to him. This is why Paul shifts. He he does that typical Paul thing where, where he gives us in verse 30... That Paul transition, where he says, well, if this is the case, what do we say then? What do we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? Do we we say that people who weren't even looking for this actually somehow got it? But the Israel who really wanted it, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The tragedy of religion is when the goal becomes a stumbling block. It hit me, how crazy is it that Jesus in Scripture is referred both to as the cornerstone and the stumbling block? Like, how does that happen? That question has, like, just plagued me all week long. Like, how does it happen that the thing that is, like, the purpose, the, the, the first love, the what it's all about, all of a sudden becomes a thing that's, like, tripping us up? The thing that's getting in the way? I was, uh, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, we were driving uh, away from a, a t-ball game, and I, I was telling Hannah that I was processing this and trying to figure it out. And she goes, 
I talked to her about it for a little bit, and she, in the most nice way, uh, says, well, what in the world scripture are you referencing here? As if I was just making this up, that Jesus was called a stumbling block. And so, so I told her, and she pulls it up, and she reads it, and she sits there for a second, and she goes, I'm so tired, none of this makes any sense to me. <laughs> it's like, well, Thanks, your help. And so I just used her for what she was at that moment. She was a wall for me to talk to. And so I just, I, I, I started talking. I was like, how is it that, that this thing that you love so much and you care about so much and everything becomes the thing that all of a sudden in your mind is holding you back? It, it's, it's the biggest issue. And then I realized as I was talking to her, because I'm there, I'm looking at my stumbling block. And I'm like, so how does this happen in marriage? Like, you know, right? Like, how is it that people get married and it's all about marriage? And this person is the best. And this person is everything. And this person is exactly what I need. And then all of a sudden, you get to a place where you can't stand that person. That, that all of a sudden, the person that was supposed to help you be the best version of yourself is the person that is holding you back from being the best version of yourself. And I don't know. I, maybe, maybe there's something else to this. And maybe I haven't fully wrapped my mind around it yet. But I think what it came back to is, as I was talking out loud and my wife was just like somewhere else, the thought hit me, it reminded me of when we were in premarital counseling and how often it seemed like our entire premarital counseling sessions were about expectations and how unsaid and more importantly unmet expectations are what most often kill a marriage. When we have expectations of what a marriage, what a spouse is going to provide us, when those expectations are not met, when they don't live up to that, whether they know it or not, that they're supposed to be living up to that. All of a sudden, that thing that was the cornerstone of our life becomes the stumbling block because we're not getting what we need. Things have not worked out the way that we thought they would. Maybe what Paul is saying is what shall we say then? That all this stuff has happened and these people who were about this and everything, could, could happen, it could happen this way. And Paul is saying, yeah, because they had these expectations of God, of Jesus, and what he would do. And when he didn't live up to those, he actually started getting in the way of what they wanted. That when they thought they would be liberated and be able to do their own thing, Jesus said, submit to governing authorities. When they thought they'd be able to have their own economy, he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. When they thought that there would be joy and happiness and liberation, he said, take up your cross and follow me. And all of a sudden, the one that was supposed to mean everything, that it was all supposed to be built on, became the one that was holding them back and telling them where you are is okay. We like to think that this will never happen to us, that we can keep things in perspective, that we will always stay focused on Jesus, and he'll never be a stumbling block to us. So we gloss over something like this, and we say, that was for them, that's not for me. But we are not as good at doing that as we think we are. Um, I, I, I've, I've, I've been in ministry now for a little over 10 years, um, and I, I think it's pretty safe to say I've done some pretty stupid stuff in my 10 years. 
Um, quite a few stupid things. Actually, too many for us to, you know, get into uh, today. Um, just for example, though, one time um, um, somebody bet me that I could not work into the sermon the phrase cheesy poofs. And um, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I can ever do that. Little, little did I know, two weeks later, I had the perfect opportunity. And so I did it. And you should have seen it. It was great because um, I, 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 I say cheesy poofs in the middle of a sermon and everybody's face looked like your faces right now. Like, what in the world is going on here? Two people are laughing. And it's the two people that knew about the bet. And I'm like, that's okay. I'm getting a Starbucks Frappuccino for this. And, um, and, and so I did it. I, I, and it, was, it was just really stupid. But, like, but now I've done it for two times. And so now they really owe me. And so, but like... What you don't realize is how easy it is to do stupid stuff where you say it's going to be all about Jesus. And it's, it's so easy. It's so easy to work in cheesy poofs to a sermon, guys. I've done it three times now. And it's so much easier to work that in than working something like, I don't know, Mosier. I mean, which is a real place, by the way. Like, you, you wouldn't believe it. But you can just about do anything that is stupid and dumb. And so when you say, I would never do that. I would never be that stupid. I'd never be that short-sighted. Chances are you will be because I know as dumb as it is for me to take a bet on whether or not I can work something into a sermon like that. I know for a fact the stupidest thing I've done in ministry is getting more wrapped up in working for the glory of God than being wrapped up in the glory of God. That for myself the people around me, the people I'm leading in ministry, the, the, the people I'm discipling, the, 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 the churches that I've been a part of, instead of encouraging me and others to just be about his glory because that's what it's all about and letting everything flow out of that, the question has always been, so now how are you going to work for this thing? Now what are you going to do for it? Now where are we going? Now how are we going to build it? And never actually experience it, never taking joy in it, never even knowing what it is that if we ever got to it, we'd be able to recognize it. Never realizing that we already have it, and so we don't need to be pushing for it. Recognizing that the work has been painstakingly done by Jesus Christ, and so we can take our time to just simply enjoy Him. You think that's, I'll, I'll never do that. I'll never be that way. Jesus will never be a stumbling block to me. That's exactly when he is a stumbling block. When you are so sure that that is what your whole life is about. It's probably not. It's so easy for us to get worked up in working for his glory rather than being in his glory. Paul had seen it with his own people. It broke his heart. And so Paul's message is, I mean, not to make a big deal about it being the last time, but like, if I can say anything, it's what Paul is saying. And that is just simply, if the slide will work. Well, it says don't miss it. Okay, there you go. Like, you missed the slide, but you know, there we go. Steve's got us. Yeah, that's right. A lot more help than Jonathan was last week. So don't miss it. Paul is saying, do not miss the thing that this is all about. And not to be too redundant, but it's about the same thing it was about last week. It's about Jesus. 
Why? Because Jesus is a full encapsulation of the glory of God in a way that we can see him and we can say, that's what it looks like. That's what it is. John says, for we have seen the Son, the one who has come from the Father, full of his glory. He has come in grace and truth. Don't miss it. Don't get so wrapped up in what it is that you need to do. Don't get so, there, there, is, there is nothing greater in your life that you are going to be able to achieve, to come into, than the thing that is already available to you right now, the glory of God. There is nothing greater that you can expect from God than his glory. And guess what? He has given it to you in Jesus Christ. You just have to ask for it. Each and every moment is a moment for us not to miss the thing that God wants for us to experience and to share more than anything else. Because he has gone through the trouble of coming back into the squalor that we have returned to to purchase us out of it by the blood of his son so that we may see his glory and know his glory and through the power of his Holy Spirit live in his glory that others may know that too. Do not miss the opportunity to be overwhelmed by who God is and what he has done. And get used to doing that because that's what eternity will look like. Don't get wrapped up in the things that you're going to be walking on in eternity. Get wrapped up in the one that puts all of those things to shame. Get wrapped up in sharing the hope and the love and the light and the joy of Jesus Christ. Don't live your life for something else that you attest to his glory by contrast. Live your life full of the weight of his glory so that you may praise him with your life by loving him and being with him, not what you do for him. He loves you enough to have carved out centuries before this moment for you to experience him and know his love and know the full weight of the God of the universe who has given himself for you that you may know him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of who you are, your love for us, the depth that it has taken you to, where you bring us to, what, what you hope for us, what you have in store for us. Lord, here in these moments, would this just be a time for our soul to respond to you, to give you all the praise that you are due, to ask of, of nothing else from you than what Moses asked. That when we could essentially have it all, just say, we want to see you. We want to see your glory. Would you shape our hearts so that is truly our foremost desire, our only desire, if that's possible. That we would see and know your glory. That we would live for it. That we would love you. And Father, as we go from here, would we live not out of a conviction to do for you, 
simply because that's what's required of us. But Lord, would we just want to share the hope of Jesus Christ because we've been there. We've seen it. We know it. And it just comes naturally flowing out of us. Thank you for who you are, how glorious you are. Lord, there are no words to describe it. So would your Holy Spirit come and witness to ours? And would we just simply pray through your Spirit, giving you the thanks and the glory you deserve? It's in your name we pray. Amen.